Good morning. Lovely to see you. I remembered not, I remembered not to sing too heartily to the song, so I've still got a voice left, so that's, that's good news. You know, sometimes in life, we, we don't always make the smartest decisions. When I'm a, at a loose end and I've got a few minutes on my time on my hands, sometimes one of the things I like to do is browse the internet. And one of the things that always makes me laugh is looking at uh, when people just don't think what they're doing. There's videos on YouTube and stuff. And there's a great website called cakerex.com. And it's got loads of pictures where people have rung up the baker and, and asked for a special cake. Uh, and they really didn't, the baker didn't understand the instructions properly. And here's a few of my favorites. So, the first one, you know, <laughs> does what it says on the tin. <laughs> I want sprinkles. No candles on this cake. I mean, who is on the phone that says, <laughs> I don't want candles on my cake. I don't want candles. <laughs> Congratulations, as small as possible. <laughs> one of my favourites. Happy 40th Zoe with two dots over the E. You know, some people. But, well, ice cakes are funny. And I guess people will regret making their choice of bakery and might go somewhere else next time if the person on the other end of the phone is as dim as that. But, you know, sometimes they can get a bit more serious than that. And have you ever watched Tattoo Fixers on telly, on the TV? It's one of those, one of those programs that you don't really intend watching. Uh, <laughs> but... Sometimes it's, it's late at night and, and, and you can't get to sleep and you watch any old tap, really, because it's just what's on. And, and, and it's real car crash telly, I must admit. And it amazes me the rubbish that some people will get permanently inked onto their bodies. A cake is one thing, and a good tattoo could look good, I'm not, but sometimes, possibly, when drink is involved, maybe, people make some stupid mistakes. And it's really funny when... <laughs> Sorry, it says something about me, maybe, that I find it so funny, but when they can't spell particularly, at least I think so anyway, let's, let's, we've got some examples here. The first one. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things away. <laughs> but it sort of runs off the tongue, you know? <laughs> Thuda only happens when it's raising, you know? <laughs> it's a new proverb right there. It, it is my life, John Bovey. You know that famous, famous 80s musician, John Bovey? <laughs> you heard of him? Oh, this one. Uh, you know, <laughs> you really, really... Oh, I don't know, some folks. You know, sometimes we don't really think through our actions, do we? And we live to the grip of them if we're fortunate. And that's okay when it's a cake, and it's perhaps a bit embarrassing when it's a tattoo. But a bad one, anyway. But, but sometimes things are a lot more serious than that. And, and sometimes our actions are sinful. And we can regret the consequences of our sins, sometimes to the point of it actually making us ill. Uh, that, that can be a lot more painful than a bit of tattoo removal, even if there are no regrets. <laughs> so today we're moving back into our summer series. We look, we've been, over the last few years, really, we've been gradually going through the Psalms in the summer. And we're carrying, off, uh, carrying on where we, we left off last year, the end of August, with Psalm 37. I think I took th Psalm 37, so there you go. If you've just blinked, you might have uh, missed the intervening 12 months, but there we go. 
It's another psalm of David, and, and this time it's, it's a real lament. Um, it makes a Johnny Cash song sound cheerful, it has to be said. So if, you're gonna, if, you, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're in Psalm 38, and if you haven't brought your Bible, then, or if you're like me, reading up close-up text and also looking at it is a bit tricky, then the text is also up on the screen. Psalm 38. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me, and your hand has come down to me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I'm bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There's no health in my body. I'm feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing isn't hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbours stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin all day long. They scheme and lie. And I am like the deaf who cannot hear, like the mute who cannot speak. I have become like one who doesn't hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. For I am about to fall, and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. Lord, don't forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Saviour. Feels like a Monday morning, doesn't it? In the NIV, in the Bible that perhaps we use most commonly at this church, the title of the psalm is a petition. But the authorised version gives it an older title. And its title, the authorization, authorised version, the, uh, put it, chose to use was to bring remembrance. Titles of the psalms the, and the attributions, whether they're credited to David or other authors, is, 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 are an interesting thing. It's a little study in itself, really. They're quite clearly not part of the original text, or the lyrics of the songs, the psalms. The book of Psalms was collated over a period of maybe a thousand years, from a time before David's reign to a time after the exile in Babylon, century, centuries later. And they were collated and they were edited and there were editions of the later editors, but that doesn't mean they're not part of inspired scripture, just as the full lyrics of the Psalms are. So the title of this psalm is, is to bring remembrance was an inspired act by an unnamed editor who we don't know. He read the psalm and he said, I know what that's about. This idea, this word remembrance, wasn't just picked by chance. It's got a clear spiritual meaning. Psalm 38 quite clearly deals with sin, iniquity, God's judgment upon sin, God's wrath, and as, as the King James Version puts it, God's hot displeasure against sin. If you've sinned as a believer and you know 
It's all caused all sorts of pain and, and regrets in your life. You might say, well, I'll deal with that myself. I'll, I'll sort it. I know it's wrong. I'll sort it. But when your sin killed maybe 70,000 people like David's did, that's what David had in his life. And he was lamenting. Most commentators believe that this psalm was written, wasn't written immediately after David had sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery and murder. But it's more a reflection over his life. And it's written, it talks about the judgment of God and the pain of the sinful life and God judging sin, even in his own life, and everything he'd done over that life. And he writes it as a song of remembrance. And this is where we do a bit of hermeneutics, if you excuse me. If you've never hermeneuticized before, don't worry, it isn't painful. <laughs> hermeneutics is just a posh word for, for, for the theory of how we interpret Scripture and why we interpret it the way we do. How we weigh up what documents written down when and, 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 and as the inspired word of God. Sometimes it may seem to contradict itself, but how does it make sense? And over language and culture barriers and, 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 and the real meaning behind some illustrations and so on. So the first one of the rules of hermeneutics is the mainstream evangelical church generally agrees that, that the, the law is the law of first mention. All, all the law of first mention is that the first time a theological concept is mentioned in the Bible when that word's first mentioned in scripture, it's when you get the clearest understanding of what it's about, what this concept's about. So the law of first mention, and then when it's mentioned again, it's, it's harking back to that first inspired use of the, the expression. So applying the, the law of first mention to, to the idea of remembrance, we come up with Genesis 8, in the first verse, in the account of Noah. God remembered Noah, and all the wild animals, and the livestock that were within him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. And this is the exact same word used by the editor of the psalm in the exact same context. The Lord remembered Noah. What was remembered was God remembered Noah out of every single person and every single animal. God judged and destroyed them. God judged sin heavily in Noah's time. And it's at this point that this idea of remembrance, remember, comes up after sin, and sin had brought forth death. And David had experienced that his sin had brought forth death. And in that experience of sin that brought forth death, he now writes this psalm of worship for the purposes of remembrance. You know, we know, know the story of the Noah and the flood. Since we're very little infants, we're taught it in Sunday school, and we read books about it, and it's great imagery, and, 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 and it's a fantastic example and story that's, that which sticks in our brain. And the great ark probably looks something like this. Not the cutesy, overcrowded little boat that sometimes we see in kids' books. The ark was a functional design that mathematically was capable of containing two of every known unclean type of animal and seven of the clean ones, and probably numerous bugs and creepy crawlies and bacteria as well. But the point is that after that remembrance, and God had judged sin after that in chapter 9 of Genesis because of the ark, there's hope. So God sets this, whoops, last slide, that's it. <laughs> so God sets this remembrance up after sin's been judged. And he puts there the rainbow. And he uses that word remembrance. And David understands it. God judges sin. And he has in the past. And he describes it in this way in verse 1 of his psalm. Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Or discipline me in your wrath. Or as the authorization puts it, as I said, 
a wonderful turn of phrase, your hot displeasure. Sounds a little more terrifying than wrath, or the word wrath anyway, doesn't it? Hot displeasure. Have you ever experienced hot displeasure? Ask my kids. <laughs> when they were little and fighting each other in the back seat of the car, they knew what my hot displeasure was. It took a lot to push my buttons. When they fought each other, that's when it got me. I couldn't cope with that. And the steam had come out my ears, and sometimes all that came between me and them was the, until I calmed down was the fact that we were strapped in a car in the outside lane of the motorway, 70 miles an hour, and I couldn't do anything about it. Never mind my hot displeasure, their backsides would be getting hot. But thankfully, for the time, by the time I was able to do something about it, my hot displeasure had cooled a little. Now, of course, God doesn't lose his temper. But David is, is begging forgiveness and forbearance from God because he knows that sin provokes God's righteous anger. We get that throughout Scripture. We get that throughout the Word of God. Proverbs 3, Hebrews 12, Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you want to look at them all later. All talk about the chastening of the Lord. That God, God rebukes those whom he loves. He chastens, he corrects. Perhaps that's a more current way we'd use the word. And David came to realise that the chastening of the Lord was pure communication. God really loved David. He really loved the children of Israel. He really loves you and me when we're corrected by him. And what we see is that it opens up an understanding that when you've sinned, the pain makes us realise. Verse 2, your arrows have pierced me. Your hand has come down upon me. The same Hebrew word here is translated as both pierced and pressed down in this verse. The same word, same Hebrew letters. I'm not an expert in Hebrew, and I understand it's correct because I read it in a concordance. But if you don't believe me, it's up on the screen, this slide next. The same Hebrew word is translated as pierced and pressed down. The meaning differs with the context of the word. That's how Hebrew works. Arrows don't press you down and hands don't pierce you. The same actual letters mean two slightly different things, but the actual same word is being repeated. It's a way Hebrew poetry has of emphasising something that's really important. In our poetry, we do rhyming and, and rhythm and so on. In Hebrew poetry, they did repetitive word games. So this is emphasising about the pain of the Lord's judgment pressing down piercing, hurting. Because of your wrath, verse 5, there's no health in my body. There's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. And that's how we, we know David, in this act of remembrance, is talking about the cost of sin because it's right there. My guilt's overwhelmed me like a burden that's too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I'm bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There's no health in my body. You can identify with that sometimes. I'm feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. Verse 4, David talks about his sin has led to his guilty feelings, his shame, his personal decisions, his evil. It's crushing him with the knowledge, with the weight of what he's done. It's important in, in God's overall plan, this, this idea, this weight of sin. Actually, when you've sinned and, and, and you have guilt and shame over what you've done, it's given by God. 
so that we're producing us a changed heart in response to our conscience. God doesn't want us to sin. Our sin is our own choice. But the realisation of the consequence of it is the Holy Spirit speaking into our hearts, into our conscience. And it should result in a changed mind. Read in Genesis how God hardened Pharaoh's heart when he listened to Moses and he wouldn't let the Israelites go. That's the opposite. Pharaoh didn't feel guilt or pain in the face of the suffering he was inflicting on the children of Israel, the sin he was committing in God's sight. He didn't feel pain. His heart was hard. When God allows us to feel pain and the guilt when we sin, he is softening our heart. David will confess his sin and he will repent. And we can see this new, the New Testament application of this very clearly here. We bring bringing remembrance, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians. Jesus gave the church something very important. Jesus given to the apostles on the night before that he was betrayed. Think it through. The first mention of remembrance showed up after sin is judged and the penalty and the death of sin is doled out upon the evil world in Noah's day. And also, incidentally, we get the, the idea of remembrance in reference to what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah when God judged them. And now Jesus comes in and says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. We read it so often in communion times. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we're really familiar with that text. There barely a week goes by without us reading it and remembering it. And it does mean that we are to remember Jesus. But there's a layer that's so much more than that. Jesus is instituting on that night the very same understanding of the judgment on sin that happened in Noah's day, that happened on Sodom and Gomorrah, that had to happen. And David in this psalm understands as a consequence, as a sacrifice required for sin. David understood that he had sinned and that sin needed to be judged. And Jesus says, ahead of him going to the cross, he understands this and he says, do this in remembrance of me. Now Paul, when he then says to the Corinthian church, for as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that place of remembrance at communion isn't so much for you and I to come to and remember what Jesus has done for us personally, although the, the weight and the burden of sin plies in our personal situation. We will get to that in if David, but I believe Paul's pointing out something that Jesus made very clear for the whole church. That when he died on the cross, the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. That remembrance was set forth. So in our communion act that we do together, we partake, literally partake, in death and resurrection. We partake in his body, having a full part in what he did. We proclaim the Lord's death. And everything we do now as Christians, we come into this forgiveness of sin. But this forgiveness is never separated from the remembrance of what it cost 
in order for that sin to be forgiven. It's not a flippant thing. It's not a light thing because sin brings forth death. Paul puts it like this in Romans. Romans 7 verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it's used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. He talks about recognizing sin for what it is. It doesn't gloss out, not to be glossed over, not to be minimized, not to be forgotten about it, just to be passed over and ignored because we're forgiven for it, so it doesn't matter. He talks about recognizing sin for what it is, and it becomes utterly sinful, totally repugnant, execrable. And Paul says here that sin has to be appear, appear this way, repugnant, repellent. God didn't have a light view of the sin once he recognized it. In fact, in Psalm 51, David, sorry, didn't have a light view of sin. In Psalm 51, which we think was penned immediately after his, the death of Uriah the Hittite and, and Nathan the prophet brought him God's word on his situation and shone the light into his life. He laid it all out. He said this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And against you, you only, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, he says. And he confesses and he repeats. And now here we are in this place of understanding when we come to communion. Like we'll do in a few minutes later this morning. So it's all very healthy to come to this place of remembrance of Jesus. That he died on the cross for the sin of the world and he died for your sin. And if you've got anything between you and him, if there's anything that's weighing you down, any guilt any shame, then when you freely come to him and say, will you forgive me? It's all because of the cross. And in Psalm 38, David is weighed down. He's broken. He's in turmoil. He's troubled and he lays himself bare before the Lord. You can imagine him just lying flat on the ground in the temple. Have you ever done that over your sin? Have your emotions overwhelmed you? Have your regrets unmanned you? When we look at Psalm 38, maybe you don't find yourself in sin right now as a believer. And I, I know both situations. I know what it is to be walking close to the Lord. And I know what it's like to be a believer having sinned and feeling the weight of, I can't believe I did that. Why did I do that? Why did I let that happen? How can I ever put it right? What am I before God right now? And I know the importance and the understanding how we need to come to the Lord and so someone says to you and says, I just feel really bad about this situation. We don't do the, don't do the British thing and say, oh, it's okay, don't worry. Don't try to smooth it over and make them feel better by minimizing it. We need in love to say to a, in, as a, a pastoring friend, what did you do? Let's help each other. Help ourselves. We need to be broken over our sin. That our sin, as Paul says, may appear exceedingly sinful. So that we can be like David and say truly, as he did in verse 9, all my longings open before you, lie open before you, Lord. My sighing isn't hidden from you. This world's found so many ways of masking its guilt. Some are self-medicated, some are prescribed. Some involve just outright saying black is white and sin isn't sin like the devil did right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that, he says? 
Anything to deaden and bur the burden and weight of sin. Anything to avoid feeling the weight and the shame of just what God really says and feels about sin. And then that's when repentance really happens. You can look at Luke 7. Luke 7 verse 41 to 43. i just read it. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And sometimes we pretend to ourselves that the debt we owe God is tiny. And so we don't feel grateful. We don't feel broken. The reality is the debt isn't tiny. However small the world may make our sin appear, it's big enough to separate us from God and provide an eternal gulf we can't cross. All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sign's not hidden from me. My heart pounds, my strength fails. Even the light has gone from my eyes. What an understanding of what the darkness of sin has brought forth. It's so dark I can't even see anymore. My friends and my companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbours stay far away. No one wants to be around me, he says. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who'd harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. Isn't this when the enemy comes to us? In the midst of our wallowing in our sin, that's when our adversary comes and he tries to destroy everything about this life of God with us. He whispers in our ear, yeah, but God didn't really mean that forgiveness stuff about you. Not about you. Not about this. It's, it's serious and God hates it and he hates you. Or, or the opposite. Oh, it's just trivial. Just ignore it. Just, it. It's just you being silly. Put it to the back of your mind. Either one of those is a lie. I'm like the deaf who cannot hear, like the mute who cannot speak. I have become like one who doesn't hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. For I said, don't let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. So David begins to cry out to the Lord for the consequences and the circumstances of what sin's done to him and the evil fruit that has burst into being out of his life. I don't know how best, really, to communicate this to you, or, or, but the correction that the Lord brings into your life because of your sin is incredibly effective. That you may feel sins exceedingly sinful and that you may confess your sin and you might forsake your sin. And it's the end, it's that turning away from sin that produces a life that wants to be with God. In the midst of all, that's when the enemy tries to come and destroy. Lord, I wait for you, you will answer, Lord my God. For I said, don't let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. How many times has Satan tried to convince Christians that if they sin, they're on their way to hell, and they've got to be born again all over again somehow? Yet when we enter into what happened at Calvary, the promise is that they're there in Scripture. For years as a Christian, I carried around, perhaps initially unconsciously, but fairly quickly subconsciously, a false idea about something, a particular event that I'd witnessed and allowed to happen and not stopped, even, and I felt responsible for. And I bore responsibility for it. And it was a wrong thing, I believed, that I, in God's sight. And instead of confessing it and lamenting it, as David does here, Asking him in the remembrance and knowledge about how he truly deals with sin, I buried it and stopped admitting it even to myself. Pretended it was trivial, pretended it was nonsense. And over several years, I listened to Satan's lie 
about sin. I knew the truth. While in my head I knew the truth in my heart, I didn't really believe it applied to me in this instance and to me at that time for some reason. No logical reason. No, no, not deliberately. Not through ignorance. But just out of the strange way sometimes the human mind works. I tried to deal with it myself and failed. And tried to pretend it didn't happen somehow. It wasn't really wrong and it wasn't my fault or responsibility, really. And the unresolved guilt poisoned my mind and fed into depression and bitterness. And the truth had to set me free. God took years and I went through a wonderful Freedom in Christ course a couple of years ago, which I recommend to everybody in this room. Not just someone struggling with an issue at the time, but because sometimes we don't even know we're struggling with something. And the systematic working through God's plan for for all of our lives was wonderful and brought peace and brought truth and it gave me a basis for a prayer and a way to find joy that I'd been struggling with for several years and then one day not very long ago God just shone a light like a laser light like a beam right into the situation I was sitting in that chair there right at the start of a message Stuart was preaching actually and I've really no (laughs) no idea what the rest of his message was because right at the start God put his finger on my heart and out of just nowhere and said, that's what the problem is. You've forgotten about it. You've buried it. You need to remember. And I spent the rest of the service sort of mentally in my head on my knees, as it were, if you can imagine what I mean. And as I speak this morning, I know, I really know and feel and understand what it is to be forgiven because I know what lifting of the weight of sin is like. And I know I'm forgiven. And it's all in the nails, Lord's nail-pierced hands now, not mine. It really is. And whatever he asks me to do, I will do. Because he's paid for it for me. And it's okay. My sin may not be as big as the world views it, but it's big enough to separate me from God. And when we understand it, it's forgiven. It's like a great weight off our shoulders. like that stone that was on the slide before taken off us and if it's not like that for us then maybe we don't understand how God views him and maybe we need the Lord to show us somehow how he sees sin how he sees our sin I feel the Lord telling me to say this I didn't want to say this it wasn't really in my mind when I started looking at the psalm but it came to my mind and I didn't put it in (laughs) And then God told me to put it in. So it may mean that there's someone here who really needs to know this. If that's what God's telling me to say, because someone needs to hear this. And if that's you, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. There's people who will pray with you. There's people in this room who will pray with you. You know who the elders, the leaders are, someone from your home group. Don't ignore it. David begins to confess from verse 17. He says, For I'm about to fall, and my pain is ever with me. So should we look for anything to remove the sorrows of this life, of our sin? No, quite the opposite. We need to allow the pain and sorrow of sin to come on our hearts. It'll bring about, it'll produce repentance. And it's the goodness and kindness of the Lord in the face of the true horror of our sin, when we see it as God sees it, that leads men to repentance. It really is that. And the church in Corinth was told to put out one who was engaging in sexual immorality and it was supposed to be exceedingly painful for him. 
in that he couldn't be in fellowship with the other Christians around him and his believers who he'd grown up with and he knew and he loved. He was meant to experience the consequences of the weight of his sin on his life. Not because Paul wanted to be mean, not to want to hate on him or to, you know, shun him. He wanted to see him helped, to see what the real face of his sin is and the real consequences so he could help him turn away from it and back to the Lord. How wonderful it is when we understand that is the wisdom of God. That's why it is that sin might appear exceedingly sinful. David continues in verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I'm troubled in my sin. Instead of what? Might say at that point. Instead of what? I do that, but instead of what? Instead of pretending it isn't sin. Instead of hiding it. Because we can't handle the consequences of what that sin is. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. And when we're walking forgiveness we're a target but David carries on despite this Lord don't forsake me don't be far from me my God come quickly to help me my Lord and my saviour it's a sin is heaped on him and that's the forsaking that's what Jesus talks about on the cross when he cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me that feeling the understanding of the barrier that exists between us and God when sin gets in the way the way that it's utterly repugnant to God and we're powerless to move it. It's as big as that huge block on the guy's back in that photograph. He couldn't move that. It was there and there was nothing he could do about it. But praise the Lord for John 1. 1 John. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. You could carry on right through 1 John and place it right here at the end of Psalms 38 as the logical next step. Because the Lord's not going to forsake you. When we've sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the only righteous one. That's like 1 John 2, verse 2. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for, your, for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You have the understanding of how important this it is to have this place because the cross... 2,000 years in the past. I'm 49, I'm not 50 till next week. Even so, I got something that was so long ago possibly apply to me now. Even my kids don't think I'm 2,000 years old. It's so long in the past. But every time we see the body and the bread and the cup, we are proclaiming that the Lord, and that by way of remembrance, sin is judged at the, at the cross. And God has, like he did with the rainbow and Noah, he's put there this promise that whatever places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then that when you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's nothing quite like being forgiven. The weight, the guilt, the shame, all gone. Put away. And so we need to have this place. We need to know that there's nothing able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the whole thing of he will not forsake you. Why will he not forsake you? He will not forsake you because Jesus died on the cross for the sin of the world. He won't hand you over. Satan won't be able to take you out. There's no angel, no power, no principality, nothing in this world, nothing in the next that will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And when we receive communion, it's a remembrance. We become like David. It becomes for us that regular remembrance to acknowledge what God has done and then to say thank you.
And also to know that any time of day or night, height or depth or wherever, wherever we may have tried to hide ourselves away like Jonah did, no matter how much pain the correction of sin comes upon, brings upon you, wherever that sin may be, he'll not forsake you. He'll not forsake me. Thanks, Mark.